Some things only God can do. In the bottom of the pit where his brothers threw him, Joseph saw God's divine guidance and care, his providence. When Joseph was sold to Potiphar as a slave, then thrown into prison, God was already working for his good. When dreams made the Pharaoh restless, God put Joseph in front of him. When all hope seemed lost, God redeemed Joseph's story for his good and his glory. There is only one who can do any of this. Only God. Good morning. Last Sunday was a fun day, wasn't it? Remembering all about the things that God has done over the past 15 years. It was fun to see some videos and pictures the last couple of weeks as we prepared for that. And, you know, I am excited about the things that he's done where we look back and the only explanation for those things is only God. Only God would do such a thing. Only God is powerful enough to do such a thing. That he can plan things and then fulfill things is, is a characteristic of only God who's always faithful like that. And we are looking forward to... Uh, the future where we will hopefully have more stories where the only explanation is only God. We want to depend on Him, rely on Him, lean into Him for all things, not, not individuals or humans or personalities or anything like that or crafty ideas, but we want to look to Him. And so we're going to try over the next, I don't even know, maybe the whole year, try to keep this idea of only God going. And it looks like people are excited to be part of something that God's doing. We might need a third service soon. This is give, no longer so small of a service. Let's go. You ready? All right. 6 a.m. service. <laughs> Sound check at 3.30. Oh, man. Hope you have your Bible today. If you do, you can grab it. Turn to Genesis 37. Over the next few weeks, uh, we got something new uh, to start. But before we get started, I want to read a lyric to you. A friend of mine wrote, he is a professional songwriter for more than 30 years. That means he's good at it. Um, if you make your income from songwriting for over three decades, you're good at what you're doing. A handful of years ago, he went through some really hard stuff, as we tend to do sometimes on this earth. Life is mean sometimes, isn't it? And it's hard, it's difficult, and uh, whether you are a strong believer, as my friend is, or not, um, it hits us all at some point in time. And I noticed that after this time, uh, a handful at least of the songs coming out of my friend's brain had this theme of redemption in it. And so I called him and I said, let's, let's talk through that. And that's very interesting to me. And he was writing for other people. Um, but, but there was this idea of, of redeeming things that he had walked through. And so I want to just read a few lines from this song. It's called, Everything Can and Will Be Redeemed. When my sorrow has been heavy and I'm broken to my knees. Have you ever been in a place like that? where your sorrow is heavy, you brought to your knees, sometimes even physically brought to your knees. He says, when I'm, my sorrow is heavy and I'm broken to my knees, I will hold on to your promise. Everything can and will be redeemed. When we are in those times of difficulty, times of struggle, whatever it is, we need to be reminded 
of God's promises. Because sometimes in the middle of that, we go numb. Sometimes we remove ourselves even from his presence. It feels like we have a hard time hearing his voice and we forget the promises that even in the midst of what we're walking through, he is the one person that can redeem the one thing that we're going through that is so difficult for us to deal with. He goes on, he says, Lord, you found me in my failure. And your kindness rescued me. Sometimes the difficulty that we are going through is caused by our own sin. Sometimes our own struggle is caused by our own sin, our pride, our, our lust, our, our poor judgment, our walking away from God and his ways and walking down our own path. And it causes us to be caught up into something that is really hard to walk through. Sometimes it's other people's sin around us. But he says, you found me in my failure. Your kindness rescued me. Oh, the goodness. Oh, the mercy. Everything can and will be redeemed. The chorus is great. It says, my God is faithful, always beside me. The guy in our story today, he knew that. Mover of mountains, my God is mighty. Lord, you are able, which is like, I think it's the motto for heritage. Lord, you are able, so I will believe everything can and will be redeemed. Redemption is one of the most important themes in all of the Bible, from cover to cover. Redemption means to buy back or to rescue from, usually with some sort of form of payment. The idea of of ransom often goes with the idea of redemption. God's relationship with his created people has always included Redemption, starting with his chosen nation, the nation of of Israel, the Israelites. He would redeem individuals or groups from difficult situations. He would redeem the whole nation from slavery in Egypt. He would redeem the whole nation that was left over from exile in Babylon. He wanted to be known as Redeemer, so they would trust him as Redeemer. He told them early on in Exodus 6 through Moses, Exodus 6, 6, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. God is a redeeming God and he can redeem any and all situations in our lives. Have you ever come through something that was real difficult, some sort of hurt or pain or loss of relationship? some sort of sin that you were stuck in? Have you made it to the other side and then you can look back and say God was at work even in that hard time? Can you say God has redeemed that situation, that relationship, that sin? Can you say that he was working for his glory, for his purposes, and even for your good in the midst of struggle? Or maybe you're in the middle right now of a difficult time. A difficult sin, a difficult stronghold, a difficult pain, relationship, loss, sickness. I would just say to you, church family, if you have lost sight of it, trust him. Trust him. Lean into him. Rest in his presence. He wants to redeem whatever it is. He is at work, even when we can't see it or feel it, as the song might say. You see, redemption is an action word, and it is God who is the one that's at work. And whenever God goes to work, let me tell you, it's a good thing, because he will accomplish what he sets out to accomplish. God did not create the world and then step back and cross his arms and say, hey, let's see what happens. 
There wasn't some cosmic science project that the Trinity was involved in and he just wanted to throw some human beings out in the world and see what would happen. No, he is, he is actively involved. It's not that we're robots or anything. They're not up there with PlayStations controlling everything we say and do and think, but everything we say, do and think can be used by God to redeem whatever he wants to do and to accomplish his purposes. He is actively involved in what's going on in his creation. This is the characteristic of God that we call providence. Providence. You should write that down. Providence. If I was going to title this sermon, it would be called the God of Providence. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this about providence. God's work of providence is his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. So he is preserving and governing his creation. Our great creator uses his creative power to keep all creation in existence, to involve himself in all events, and to direct all things to their appointed end, which, of course, he appointed, because he is God. So over the next six weeks, we're going to be using the story of Joseph to show that God is always at work to accomplish his plan for his glory and for the good of his people. I would write that down. God is always at work to accomplish his plan for his glory and for the good of his people. That's why Joseph one day, like the song we just sang, we're not going to get there today, but in chapter 50, he would say, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God is at work in all things. The story of Joseph is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's the longest and most um, incredible narrative in Genesis, if not the entire Bible. It goes from chapter 37 all the way through 50. And you know I love good narratives. I love good stories. I love to teach them to you. Even secular authors, though, have noticed this incredible story of Joseph. Agnes Meyer, when she was writing in the New York Times book review, said this, Purely as narrative and background, there is a magnificent story here which exceeds in drama, opulence, and movement anything that Hollywood has ever dreamed. Pretty good story. You ever seen uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor or whatever? Yeah, I saw that. I'm not really into plays. Debbie Gibson was the main actor, though. It was cool. Theologian Kent Hughes wrote this about Joseph. Ultimately and above all, the story of Joseph is about God working his will through the everyday events of life. There are no miracles in this story. Okay, this isn't Moses. There's no burning bush. The sea's not parting. There's no plagues. This is everyday people doing everyday stupid things and God working his will through it. The story is about the hidden but sure way of God. God's hidden hand arranges everything without show or explanation or violating any of the, the nature of things. God is involved in all the events and directs all things to their appointed end. So let's, let's say a quick prayer and then let's dive into Genesis 37 verse 1. Father, be with us as we open your word. Help us to understand it correctly. I pray that your spirit would be at work today as we do this. Apply it to our lives, Lord, so we can be the men and women you desire us to be. Amen. Verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Quick recap. 
God's chosen people started in Genesis 11 with a man named Abram. Changed his name to Abraham. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. God had a land for them called Canaan. And this is Jacob now, and he is living with his family in Canaan. Jacob had a twin brother named Esau, not chosen, not living in Canaan, okay? If Genesis 1 through 11 highlights creation of earth and humanity, then in a very real sense, Genesis 12 to the end, Genesis 50, highlights God's creation of a special nation, this nation of Israel, okay, the Israelites. God chose Abraham to be the father of this new nation, and this group plays some very special strategic roles in creation, in, in the country, in the world right there, in that area. First, their election, their chosenness is the key to solving the sin problem that is so evident in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. I mean, sin is rampant. We've already had a flood and wiped out the whole thing and started over at this point. People are sinful people. But the, the group that God has chosen is going to be the key to solving this sin problem. Second, they provide a visible symbol to the outside world of God's forgiving grace of those sinful human beings. See, it would not have worked if all of a sudden God chose a people for himself and then made them all perfect and sinless. By keeping them sinful and him forgiving them through his grace was a sign to the rest of the world that there was hope. Do you see that? Third, they demonstrate the necessity of commitment to the one creator God. Whenever they got away from that commitment and worshiped other gods, what happened? That the answer is bad things. Fourth, they illustrate the necessity of exercising faith in their relationship to the Lord. Just as we learn in the New Testament, the Old Testament is the same way. We come to our relationship with God through our faith in him. So, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Those 12 sons eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of his youngest sons, Joseph, is the central figure for Genesis 37 through 50. Are we caught up? Verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, young man, pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy. He was with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So Joseph is a young man. He's immature probably. Not perfect, as some people might help you to believe. He was, there was nobody, no human being in the Bible that was perfect. We know that, so that would be silly. But he brings a bad report. Your translation may even say evil report. So at least we could assume it might have been a false report about his brothers. Okay. And at the very least, we can just say, well, Joseph was a tattletale. Um, you know, just that kind of younger brother that just knows how to get on everybody's nerves. Verse 3. Now, Israel, nickname for Jacob. Okay. Israel loved, that's why they're called the Israelites. Y'all don't get as interested in this stuff as I do, I feel like. <laughs> you need to know that. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. So his, his uh, favoritism of Joseph was not hidden. Okay, When his brothers saw that, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. 
Joseph was already having problems. His father had put him in charge when he was the youngest, which doesn't go good for older and younger brother relationships. Anybody an older brother? My brother's not in charge of anything in my house. He's already having problems with his brothers, and he's given this false possible report of them. Now he's got a fancy new robe from his dad. His brothers see that their father loved him more, and they begin to hate him. The sin of favoritism, by the way, is becoming kind of like a family tradition in Jacob's house. Okay, do you remember Jacob's father loved Esau more than he loved him? Jacob's mother loved Jacob more than she loved Esau. Okay, then eventually there was all kinds of deceitfulness going on. Jacob gets married, but he loves Rachel more than Leah because he got tricked into marrying Leah. Now he's got all these sons, and he loves Joseph. I mean, he just keeps going on. You would think eventually the guy would go, maybe we should just try not to have this stuff, favoritism going on. More than anyone, he would have known to love all the kids equally, like I do, Braxton and Ainsley. <laughs> so Joseph is in charge. Joseph was loved the most and given this beautiful robe. He's basically being treated, do you see this, as the firstborn, not the 11th born. That's this problems. So his brothers loathed him. Now, you might be one at this point, Brian, you started the whole thing out saying God's involved in everything. Where's God in all this? Because, you know, he could have kept Joseph from, from making a bad report. He could have kept Jacob from loving Joseph so much that he made him look like the firstborn. Why is God not involved? Oh, God's involved. In fact, he's fixing to add fuel to the fire. He's going to get the brothers to hate Joseph even more. Look at this. The fuel comes from two dreams given by God. Verse 5. Now, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Now, there's no way that any of his brothers missed the point of this dream, okay? Joseph was telling them, all of you guys are going to bow down to me one day, okay? I'm going to be the ruler. Now, how do you think the older brothers took that? Look at verse 8. It tells us. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Verse 4, they hated him. Verse 5, they hated him. Verse 8, they hated him. And if that wasn't bad enough, God gives him a second dream to just, you know, let's finish this thing off. <laughs> Verse 9, he dreamed another dream and he told it to his brother. That, Joseph, he just can't read the room. So <laughs> you don't just go on and tell all these people that are mad at you. You don't tell them a second dream. But he did. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Oh, really? Tell us. <laughs> behold, <laughs> behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father, he even brought dad in this time, brought it to, it to his father and his brothers. His father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. What do you think Joseph expected? He's just young. He just doesn't know better, I guess. We don't know his motive for sharing the dreams, but we at least know sometimes he likes to stir the pot, doesn't he? He's already tattling on his brothers. He's already, you know, like strutting around in this, in this beautiful robe he got from daddy. And now he's going to tell them about these dreams where he's in charge and they're all bowing down to him. Now, this is very interesting. Did you know that in the story, Joseph, all the dreams in the narrative come in pairs? Did you know that? 
because the pairing of dreams meant that there was a certainty of fulfillment. Okay, later on in chapter 41, we won't get there today, but Joseph is interpreting dreams for Pharaoh, and he tells him this. Chapter 41, verse 32. Joseph says, The doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. So God has basically sealed the deal by giving Joseph a second dream, knowing that it's going to be fulfilled. His brothers will definitely hate him. So by giving him these dreams and knowing Joseph couldn't help himself but to share them, God essentially ensured the rejection of Joseph by his brothers. Why would he do that? Isn't that a question you've ever asked that you'd like the answer to? Why would God do that? Have you ever been in a time in the midst of something and you go, why would God do that? That's a question I've asked. Why would God allow that? Why would God make me walk through that? We never get an answer in a timely fashion. At least I don't. But even when we can't see it or feel it, I want you to know today that God is at work. Go back to our definition of providence. God's work of providence is his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures. He is trying to preserve us, our souls, for eternity. So no matter what is going on in our lives, good, bad, or indifferent, he is at work for our good. He is. It is hard to see sometimes. But you see what that tells us. It reveals that any of us who follow God will live a life that will sometimes become very tangled. Is that true? At times, complications will arise, sometimes from our own sin, sometimes from the sin of those around us, and we're caught up in their web, even if it's not our fault. We live in a world that's, that's in this web of sin, and it seems like every single day they're throwing out new webs of sin to get caught in. But we know, even in the middle of life's complexities, the creative power of God is at work to do us good. This is true if we're sick. It's true if we have trouble with our kids or our grandkids. It's true if we have problems at work. Truly, we have a God of providence, a God who sustains us in all of life, always working for good. The Apostle Paul told us this. You probably know the passage. What is it? Romans 8, 28. Some of you knew that. You know your Bible. Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for all things. All things, good, bad, and different. All things work. Work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is a truth, church family, that you need to learn now because life is not going to get easier. It's going to get more difficult. In fact, the more that you follow God, the more complicated your life should become because your life's course is going to go against the currents of the world around you. Have you found that out yet? Might even make you think about going back, but don't. You can trust that God is at work to do you good and find rest in that, even if you're in the middle of your struggle right now, today. I would say submit to him, follow him, trust him. Back to Joseph. The scene is set, and if you know the story, the plan would, would soon be set into motion by Joseph's brothers. It would send Joseph into slavery in Egypt. We also know, if you've read the Bible, that God's plan was in full motion, wasn't it? Even though no human could see it yet. You see, there was a famine coming, different enemy than the people of Israel had faced at this point, something that they couldn't see coming. There was a famine, and Israel would need a human savior to help them get out of this famine, to help them survive the famine. You know who that person was going to be? The future governor of Egypt. And he was being put in place even in the midst of evil being planned out by man. 
God's hidden providence is at work, even in and through that. So let's jump ahead. One day, Joseph is at home. His brothers are out with the flock a few towns away. Pretty good journey. His, his father, Jacob, says, Joseph, take all this food, go out to see your brothers, and come back and give me a report. Joseph doesn't even understand how bad his brothers hate him because he, he says, okay, Dad, I'll go. I'd love to see my brothers. Look at verse 18. They saw him from afar. Okay, they noticed if the sun hit him the right way or something, his silhouette, something about the way he walked, the way he carried himself, they knew it was Joseph coming. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Kill him. They hate him, they hate him, they hate him, and now they decide to kill him. The evil in the hearts of men is super scary, isn't it? That they could go from that kind of progression that quick to that. This guy was their brother. One of 12 brothers. I mean, when family was everything, family was their survival. And they hated him, hated him, hated him, wanted to kill him. Just like that, the evil in man's heart. Now, as he was getting closer, you can imagine the brothers chiming in a little bit, you know, making the plan. Hey, let's throw him in this pit. Yeah, yeah, and then we'll, we'll take that robe and we'll, and we'll make it look like an animal killed him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they're getting their story straight because at some point they got to go home and tell their father and all the other people around town what happened to this young guy who happens to be their father's favorite, and they know that. Genesis 37, verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it, obviously deep enough. He couldn't crawl out of it by himself. Then they sat down to eat, verse 25 says. Can you imagine? They probably took the food that the little guy brought to them, threw him in a pit, beat him, and then sat down and just decided to laugh and eat and be merry while he's in the pit screaming and yelling, please save me, don't do this, pleading with them not to do this thing to him. They pretended like they couldn't hear him. In fact, we know that they did hear him. Years, years later, it still haunted them. All the way to chapter 42, verse 21. They said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. They heard. They weren't concerned about the consequences of their sin on that day, were they? We often aren't. Usually when we're right in the middle of deciding if we're going to sin or not or going through with it, we're not thinking about the consequences. The brother's plan was to eat, move on, and then leave Joseph to wild animals or birds or maybe just starve to death, I don't know. But the hidden hand of God's providence showed up again. This time it was in the caravan of, a, uh, of, some, of some slave traders. All of a sudden they appear. Look at 26. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our own flesh. Judah's thinking, we could make a little bit of money off of this. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. The brothers went home. They took Joseph's robe. They dipped it in blood. They showed it to their father, which is so ironic if you know your Bible, because Jacob himself once tricked his father by taking his brother's cloak, dipping it in some blood, and showing it to him. Remember that? Trying to make him think that he was Esau. Jacob's deceit had come full circle. Jacob assumed that Joseph is dead, been torn to pieces by wild animals, his precious favorite son. Jacob mourned and mourned and mourned and refused to be comforted. In fact, he committed to mourn for Joseph until he himself died, which is way longer than the, you know, the normal two weeks for mourning. 
But Joseph wasn't dead. Providence. God is at work to accomplish his plan for his glory, for the good of his people. Always. The last verse is not a throwaway. Look at verse 36. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar. Who's Potiphar? An officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Don't miss this glimmer of hope because you know the story. God's hand of protection was on Joseph. Being sold as a slave could have gone very badly for him. You can imagine, probably beaten, naked, down in this pit. Could have gone very bad for him very quickly. Joseph never whines, never exemplifies an attitude of victimhood in all that happened, which is a good good lesson for us. Life is unfair. Bad things is going to happen to you. But if you truly believe, if your doctrine, if your theology is in a God who is always at work for your good, then you can trust him no matter what you're walking through. It won't be until later chapters that we read about it, but Joseph, you see, he had faith in God of his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather. Joseph had this deep-seated trust in the covenant-making, promise-fulfilling, never-messing-up God. He believed in that. And if that God had made promises, if that God had given dreams, then that God would fulfill all of it, and Joseph knew that. And in all of this going on, this favoritism, the lying, the anger, the violence, the being sold into slavery... God is working in all of this to his end. He's paving the path to take his people out of Canaan and into slavery in Egypt. Why would God do that? So that he can then introduce himself to his people as redeemer, as rescuer, as savior, as deliverer. Don't we know God is that because we know the whole story? He wants us to know him like that. He wants us to know that he will pass over all of our sins. He will rescue and deliver us not only from difficult things here on earth, but from the curse of sin and eternal death through his son, Jesus Christ. We can trust God in all these things because we know that he loves us. Do you know God today as rescuer, as deliverer? Have you met the, the savior that can remove the sin in your life that has you on the path to eternal judgment and death? Or are you still bound to slavery of your own sin? Today could be the day of rescue, like Brian said earlier. Today could be your day where you allowed God to have the victory in your life if you would just say yes to him in your faith. We're going to sing a song as we finish today. Brian and Rod are going to do this. It's the song I read to you at the beginning. I think it's fitting. There is hope for redemption in whatever situations you are in today. While we sing, there's going to be some of my friends, some men and women, some pastors, overseers, ladies, men that, that care about you, that love you, that you can trust. If you want to pray, if you want to talk, if you'd like someone to introduce you to Jesus for the t- first time, I would encourage you to come forward during this song while we sing and come talk to one of these people. They're kind. But we'll sing this song and then we'll close. When my sorrow has been heavy and I'm broken too. 
promise maker, promise fulfiller, and no matter where we find ourselves today, the struggle we might be in because of our sin, because of someone else's sin, because of just the things on earth that are broken, waiting for your restoration, we know we can trust in you. Father, help us to lift our eyes to you, our helper, our creator, our deliverer. 
Father, send us out today to a dark world. Allow us to be light for you, to share the hope that we have in our providential redeeming God. We love you, Lord. Thank you for the cross. Amen. See you next week.